You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In the ninth lecture, I'd like to pick up where I left off the last time with a discussion of some of the particular sacraments, make some further reflection. In particular, in the beginning here, I'd like to discuss the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. The struggle for conversion from sin and for real holiness in life is an ongoing struggle, and the Lord never ceases to call us to forgiveness and healing. In the period just after his resurrection from the dead and before he ascended to his Father in heaven, Christ gave his apostles the power, he had already begun this at the time of the Last Supper, he gives the apostles the power to forgive sins. We might think in particular of the 20th chapter of St. John where he says, verse 20, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. By approaching this sacrament, the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, one can obtain God's mercy for the offense that any sin is to him, and at the same time become reconciled with the church, whose body is wounded by any sin. It's an extremely important point, I think, namely that the main problem in sin is that it is an offense to God. There's an ugliness to any sin that if we could really see it would terrify us. But in addition, there's also, of course, the offense given to our neighbor, the offense given to the church, given sometimes to a particular person, sometimes at large, because there is the effect upon the person who might be injured, if it's that type of sin, and also the effect on us that we have become every more a bit of a liar every time we tell a lie, or become every bit more the kind of person who is hateful every time we exercise our spite. What the sacrament does is bring about the real forgiveness of this and begin the healing that we require any time we have torn the fabric of our own being by the offenses we've given to God and neighbor. Specifically, the sacrament requires the confession of one's sins to a priest, an act of genuine contrition, a promise to amend one's life, perhaps by thinking of a suitable kind of amendment, the completion of a penance that the priest gives us, some sort of prayer, some sort of service that is suitable to the penitent in particular circumstances. Now, from the point of view of the spiritual life, each of these parts, I think, is extremely important. We can see very readily the importance of an explicit acknowledgement of our sin. Namely, because we are unities of body and soul, of matter and form, because of the kind of being that we are, it is a matter of thinking, but also a matter of saying and of admitting. Don't we all know the infinite powers of rationalization we have, of thinking that something isn't really the case when it is the case, or vice versa? And so part of the sacrament of penance, as the Lord has designed it, is precisely that we admit in so many words what we have done. I've certainly found in my own life, both as penitent and as confessor, the importance of saying what I've done or watching and being privileged to be a confessor for someone. And that very act of saying it and admitting it to God by admitting it here to the person of the priest is an extremely important part of being truthful. It's a matter of letting the truth come out where we have perhaps been lying or been rationalizing. 
Sometimes it's a matter of admitting particular sins. Sometimes it's a matter of admitting somewhat more global faults and even admitting weaknesses. Secondly, in confession, there is an importance of a genuine need to be really sorry and to express that sorrow. Sometimes we'll feel this intensely. At other times, frankly, we may not have much feeling. We may find ourselves devoid of the feelings we would think would be appropriate. And yet we must express our sorrow and express that sorrow in a way that really manages to express our contrition, even if it is a contrition that is done by intellect and will and not done by the feeling that we wish were accompanying it. This is the need for a serious and integral act of confession, an act of contrition. Also crucial for progress in the spiritual life by the use of this sacrament is that we really do learn to accept and to admit and to appreciate the healing mercy of God that is involved. I find regularly within the sacrament of penance and reconciliation that it is an experience of God trusting us and we must trust God because when we come to confession, what we are doing is admitting to the Lord that we have done wrong and asking for his forgiveness. And so part of it is accepting and really trusting that he does really forgive. And then we must ourselves make that act of trust by accepting the grace. We can't continue to be in the mindset that, oh, maybe we haven't been forgiven. But when we have received the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, part of what we must do is to trust God that he has really forgiven us, that it is over and done with. And we must now look to the future, try to avoid near occasions of sin in the future, try to avoid the particular sin that we did commit, and try now to move ahead in life for the Lord wants us to come to himself, eventually to the perfect happiness of heaven. Hence, there is a matter of being assured of God's healing mercy, for he is ever ready to assist us in carrying out the promises we make to amend our life. We say this when we say the act of contrition, namely that we promise to amend our ways. Here too, I think it's very important to think about the way in which we come to confession. Not only that we try as best we can to prepare ourselves by a good examination of conscience, I'll deal more with that when we get to lecture 12. But even at the time of making the act of contrition, of going to the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, part of what we are promising is that we will try to amend our life. Now, I think we need to be realistic about that. It can't be that we're going to amend our life like that as if we could simply, by virtue of a single act of will, change things. But we do need to have a plan. And we do need, when we're thinking about a sin, especially one that we've needed to confess somewhat regularly, what are we going to do about it? It's not that we can do it all instantly or expect that we'll have complete and entire success at once, but we need to have a plan and it may be avoiding something that is an occasion of sin for us. It may be a matter of preparing us. For example, if I find that there's one of those persons in my life who kind of knows how to push my button, knows how to get me angry, maybe even unthinkingly just succeeds in getting me altogether too easily angered. Part of what I need to do is to prepare myself, that if it's someone with whom I must regularly meet and deal, part of what I must do perhaps is to pray before I get into the vicinity of that person and to think about how I'm going to be mindful that there's something that I just don't like or something that annoys me easily so that when I come into the presence of that person, I have invoked the grace of the Holy Spirit and I begged him, for the sake of being prepared so that I don't yield again to the passions of dislike and anger. So too for other kinds of sin that we might find. Then there is of course the matter of accepting the reconciliation that the priest gives us. That part of the sacrament is the absolution in a formula that the priest has 
been empowered to give by the sacrament of his own ordination so that we really do receive God's forgiveness by this act. But we also sometimes receive a penance. And the penance is something that is never quite equal to the crime, never equal to the misdeed. It's not intended that our penances always be an exact quid pro quo. Sometimes they are in the form of prayers in which what we are acknowledging is, is that we are only forgiven in this situation anyway by the grace of God. And all we're doing is offering a short prayer, accepting the mercy that he has bestowed on us and pleading with him indeed to improve us for the future. But at other times it's helpful for the penance to be something which is a kind of a reparation. This is the sort of thing that is required if there's been some act of injustice. For example, if there's been an act of thievery, what we are required to do is somehow to make a restoration and a reparation of what has been stolen. Sometimes that can be done very directly by the return of the exact object that was stolen. Sometimes it's a matter of returning the value of the object that was stolen. Sometimes it's not possible, even though it was an act of injustice, to return it in the same kind. I'm thinking here of a case, for example, when we besmirched someone's reputation. It may not be possible directly to undo what we did. And in fact, to say other things could only make the matter worse because it would call attention to something that probably is best left unnoticed, forgotten in other people's minds. And yet we still owe a kind of reparation. Hence, in the mystical body of Christ, what is quite possible, if we cannot find a way of repairing exactly the damage done, we can do this by a kind of vicarious reparation. So that if we cannot assist the person whom we have injured, sometimes what we can do is offer things to the poor, offer things entirely anonymously to someone else and to give assistance in another way. And this at least we do by way of saying that we ourselves must try to repair other wounds in the body of Christ by some act of real charity done precisely out of love for the Lord and for the Lord's poor wounded body in the large church, even when we cannot repair the particular damage done. All of this is somehow involved in the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. One finds a wonderful discussion of this in the Catechism at Numbers 1422 to 1470. And we turn to the sacrament of the Eucharist. This is extremely important and perhaps one of the most characteristic sacraments in the whole plan of the sacraments that Christ established. It is the one by which we are particularly privileged to enjoy intimate union with God by taking him into our own bodies, body and blood, soul and divinity. And participation in the life of Christ in this way, participating in the sacrifice of the Mass and then in the worthy reception of Holy Communion, is in many ways our closest anticipation by the way of the liturgy to the eternal banquet that is what heaven will be. The name of this sacrament, the Eucharist, literally means in Greek a thanksgiving to God, eucharistein, and this name suggests a tremendous amount for the spiritual life. In particular, there is the need to prepare ourselves well for coming to Mass and for receiving the body and blood of the Lord in communion, as well as a matter of taking time afterwards in order really to be thankful to the Lord who is within us and allowing him to speak to us if he will, allowing us more and more deeply to appreciate what it is that we have just received. There's a very curious irony at work, I think, in the church today when the sacrament of penance is so often neglected or relished to extreme rare occasions, whereas most people who come to church receive communion. Now, ready access to communion, ready access to the sacrament is to be commended. This is the way that the Lord has chosen to feed us, to give us a very intimate union with himself.
And yet, precisely because it is so common, sometimes there is not enough preparation given, nor enough receptivity, enough thankfulness, and hence much need for improvement in the preparation with which we come to Mass and come to communion, as well as in the cultivation of a spirit of thankfulness afterwards. Not because the sacrament doesn't work otherwise, as we saw in our previous discussion about the sacraments in general, the sacraments operate simply when the action has been performed. But for us to experience the fruit of the sacrament, for us to receive what the Lord intends us to receive most fully and most completely, there is this need for suitable disposition on the part of those to whom the sacraments are administered, so that the sacrament will really have its greatest effect when it communicates grace to us. When we think about the particular physical sign and physical action involved here, one is very mindful of how deeply appropriate it is. Christ's choice of the use of bread and wine when he could have chosen many other things here takes up interesting and important elements from the Old Testament, whether from the case of Melchizedek described in Genesis, from the time of the Passover that is described in Exodus, but also from the sacrifice that he himself made from his own Last Supper and from the time of the sacrifice on the cross. All of this time in his passion and in his dying is brought up into the liturgy in which we remember the Last Supper and remember his sacrifice on the cross as well as remember his rising from the grave. In our liturgy, in fact, one has echoes of this in the words we repeat immediately before the distribution of Holy Communion. The liturgy takes up the words of the centurion, which, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, are recorded as, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant shall be healed. And we take up those words and say an approximation of them at the Mass, putting ourselves very much in the person of that centurion. This we do liturgically as an immediate preparation for Holy Communion, and so we ought to do personally, readying ourselves as best we can by prayer and by our thoughts about the Christ whom we are about to receive as nourishment for our spiritual life, as a restoration of strength for us, and even as the forgiveness of certain venial sins. On this subject, one finds interesting parts in the discussion of the Eucharist that is within the Catechism, Numbers 1322 to 1419. Let me turn to the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, discussed next in the Catechism at Numbers 1499 and following. This is a sacrament that may be administered to any member of the faithful who is seriously ill or in old age. One need not be at the point of death. That was the rule for a long period in the use of this sacrament, but now it is used more broadly. Again, it involves both prayer and the use of a physical sign, in this case oil, that has some of the same suggestions that oil did in baptism or in confirmation, and especially the medicinal use of oil in medicines and salves, and it's an appropriate sign of the kind of restoration and the healing power that the Lord intends. This sacrament is rooted in the many healings that Christ, the divine physician, worked in his lifetime, and the directives that he gives that are recorded by the Apostle James in the letter of James. The ritual for this particular sacrament takes up that image of Christ the Divine Physician. I'm very mindful that in his own life he worked as carpenter, as laborer, and also you know, he had a, just a strong sense of the calling as preacher. But so many of the things he did in his lifetime are the healings of the sick. And so we rightly call him the Divine Physician. The ritual that the church uses for this sacrament rightly acknowledges that our Death for us is always ultimately inescapable, and yet what Christ does is offer us salvation through the merits of his suffering and death. 
And so in addition to the healing that we believe is possible through the sacrament of anointing, there is also an important part for spiritual theology when we consider in the rites involved in the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, how our own suffering and pain can be offered up, how they can be united to Christ, the crucified Christ, the one who suffered for us, the one whom the letter to the Hebrew calls the pioneer of our salvation, one who is made perfect through suffering. All of this is done because we know that there is no salvation apart from the cross and that we must embrace the cross. It will indeed never be too heavy for us if we united with Christ who is the one who carried the cross for us and all the more so when this sacrament is given as viaticum, as preparation for the journey that will be our journey into the next life. For the remainder of this lecture, I'd like to concentrate on the final two sacraments, namely matrimony and holy orders. The Catechism calls matrimony, like holy orders, one of those sacraments, quote, at the service of communion, that is, directed toward the salvation of others as well as of ourselves. From the beginning of God's plan, that is, from the beginning of creation that is described in Genesis, Marriage was designed by God as the natural vocation for every man and woman and something that was intended to provide a helpmate not only for the troubles of this life but as designed to give us a partner on the pilgrimage toward heaven that we are involved in during this life. As a social institution, something of a public nature, marriage certainly has definite contractual obligations and yet it is also in the understanding that spiritual theology and the theology of the sacraments gives to us of the institution of marriage, it is also a covenant and a bond that is analogous to the bond between God and his chosen people Israel, as well as the bond between Christ and his church. That notion of covenant, which again we can only talk about here in this course briefly, is so important to biblical theology. It is perhaps the most important theological idea that comes from the time of Adam and Eve when God makes a covenant with them, through the covenant made with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, and the very notion of covenant, which is also translated testament, is the whole organizing principle for the New Testament or the new covenant that comes with Christ that is discussed by prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 31, and then that is initiated by Christ and brought to its consummation at the Last Supper and the sacrifice on the cross and the resurrection. That notion of a new covenant, a new bond that Christ establishes with his church, fulfilling and completing the bond that God has established with the people of Israel, that is the language with which the church understands the marriage covenant that it is not just a civil contract, but it is rather a special bond that the spouses make with one another before God and that is intended to have some of the same characteristics of the bond that God makes with the people and Christ makes with his church. We can understand this by considering some of the characteristics and let me for the sake of this discussion consider three of them, namely unity, fidelity, and an openness to fertility. First in the matter of unity and indissolubility. The nature of the commitment between spouses requires that we make a promise to one another, a promise that is intended to last for one's whole lifetime. When Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, says, so they are no longer two but one flesh, what he proposes is that the physical union of spouses 
is intended to suggest and to symbolize the unity that ought to take place between them psychically and spiritually, and that this fullness of union between the two persons is intended to suggest precisely in a sacramental or in a sign fashion the indissoluble love that Christ has for his church. Consider, secondly, the element of fidelity. The commitment of marriage is a gift of each person to the other, and one that is intended by definition to be irrevocable. By recalling the analogy of marriage with the discussion of the commitment and the union, the covenant between Christ and his church, that's especially brought out in the letter of Ephesians chapter 5, the church gives us ways to understand the place of fidelity within marital spirituality. That is, in mutual love, Christ came to serve his bride, the church, who in turn needs to serve him and to serve him alone. As the letter to Ephesians insists, he has no other bride and she is to have no other Lord. So the reason why Christians are opposed to any kind of infidelity or adultery is that it would not adequately reflect the relations between Christ and his church. So too we need fidelity in our marriages. Third, it's important to suggest an openness to children. As the document from the Second Vatican Council, Gaudium et Spes, reminds us at number 48, by its very nature, the institution of marriage and married love is ordered to the procreation and education of the offspring, and it is in them that it finds its crowning glory. Now, while not all marriages will be blessed with children, spouses always need to remain open to the coming of children and ever ready to accept them with love and then to care for them and to educate them. Again, for the purposes of spiritual theology, for there is so much more that one could say here within moral theology, but for the purposes of spiritual theology, I'd like to call our attention again to that fifth chapter of Ephesians and the way in which Christ offers his love to the church precisely in order to raise up children of the church in faith. We always remain free to accept and respond to the offerings of grace and the grace of faith, and Christ will never force faith. And yet, on the other hand, there would be something deeply wrong with ever putting an obstacle in the way of faith. So too, the church understands that there is something the matter with contraception or with any form of activity or some form of barrier, which would in some way place an obstacle to fertility, that somehow this is a way to symbolize the way in which Christ gives the gift of faith and allows there to be children of the church to grow up. Let me turn in the few minutes that remain in this lecture to the sacrament of holy orders. This is discussed in the New Catechism at Numbers 1536 to 1600. And this too, like the sacrament of matrimony, is described as a sacrament in the service of the communion. It is the sacrament by which the mission that Christ entrusted to the church is carried on in the course of time. Ordination involves, of course, a consecration of a man into the order of deacon or priest or bishop and the conferral of a gift by the Holy Spirit that enables the individual to exercise a sacred power that comes only from Christ himself through the church. Unlike the priesthood in the Old Testament, where both the Aaronide and the Levitical priesthood were hereditary, the ministerial priesthood within Christianity involves the discernment of a vocation and then the ordination by a bishop for the participation in the one priesthood of Christ. What we insist upon to understand the Catholic priesthood is that we are only ministers of the one mediator between God and man, namely Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of the Mass that priests are empowered to offer 
is something that is given not for their sacrifice or for anything that the priest himself does, but rather a way for the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross to be available to people in a way ongoing in time. A sacrifice in which Christ is the true priest and all others are only his ministers. The Catechism discusses this, for instance, at paragraph number 1545. While all believers share in Christ's mission as priest, prophet, and king by virtue of their baptism, the ministerial priesthood differs essentially from that common priesthood, namely it is intended to be at the service of the common priesthood of the faithful and to be the means by which Christ ceaselessly builds up and directs his church. Here I'm quoting from the Catechism at number 1547. The ministerial priesthood, by virtue of the sacrament of holy orders, acts in the person of Christ, who is, quote, head of the mystical body. It is always important, I think, to remember that it is Christ who acts in the sacraments, even when his ministers are sometimes quite unworthy. The effectiveness of the sacraments that a priest, even a sinful one, offers comes not from the holiness of the priest, although we hope that priests will be holy, but comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. There are, admittedly, special graces available to the priest, and a priestly spirituality is intended to cultivate those, available to the priest by virtue of the sacrament of ordination. And yet, as we know all too sadly, the sacrament of ordination does not remove human weakness or human sinfulness automatically. The misconduct of priests can harm apostolic fruitfulness. They can harm it by bad example and by other infidelities to the gospel. And yet, even in these reflections on weakness, one sees something about what the spirituality of the priesthood ought to have as its center and as its focus, namely, humble service of the people of God by priests, for they must remember constantly that they have been entrusted with a sacred ministry and with sacred powers, such as the forgiveness of sins and the celebration of the Eucharist. They have been entrusted with these powers by Christ through the church, and they are meant to give adequate representation. To quote the Catechism, the exercise of their power and authority must always be measured against the model of Christ, who by love made himself the least and the servant of all. The Catechism reflects at some length on the graces of the Holy Spirit that belong to this sacrament. As the very rite of ordination suggests, the sacrament confers a grace of strength for pastoral government and for defense of the church. It is intended to confer a love for all and even a preferential love for the poor, the sick, for the needy. It is to convey a courage to proclaim the gospel and to be a model to others, even to the point of readiness to give one's life for them as Christ himself did for the church, and hence the importance of the notion of shepherd. The proper response of priests to such graces needs, of course, to be gratitude, humility, and docility to Christ, so as to conform one's whole life to him whose sacrament has made the ministers. We have now conducted at least a brief, if overly brief, survey of the sacraments, and in the next lecture, I'd like to turn to the question about virtues, theological and moral. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.